This episode of The Rome Devices is sponsored by Hover.com. Hover.com is a domain name registry. That's the place you can go to purchase your very own custom domain name for your website. I went there because I wanted to buy their own devices.com, but turns out somebody else already has it. So they gave me over a hundred other options for a close or similar domain name that could work. And I'll share some of those with you later in this episode. Go to hover.com slash TOD if you'd like to purchase a domain name and you'll get 10% off. A doctor, a lawyer, and a computer scientist walk into a room. This is not the start of a joke. This is the start of a discussion about teens and technology. And I think you're going to find it entertaining. Hi, I'm Mark Roman, a tech policy expert and former White House advisor on privacy. I'm David Reitman, an adolescent medicine doctor who works with teens. We're also married to each other and raising a teenage son of our own. You're listening to Their Own Devices, a parenting podcast with practical advice for the 21st century. Who is Dana Boyd? Seriously? Dana Boyd is a world-famous computer scientist, a principal researcher at Microsoft Research, a professor at New York University, and many, many, many other things. Most importantly, she is the author of a book called It's Complicated, The Social Lives of Network Teens. In publishing this book, Dana traveled across 18 states, interviewed over 150 teenagers, and distilled down their perspective and their views on the digital world for all of us to read. It's fascinating. She looks across cultures and demographics, which is really important. And she also examines the struggle between parents and teenagers. And Dana believes that too often, as we discuss policy and technology and teenagers, we too frequently dismiss the teen perspective. That makes her a really interesting guest on their own devices. This episode was recorded in front of 250 people at the International Association of Privacy Professionals Global Privacy Summit. That summit was held in Washington, D.C. on May 1st. It was an incredible event, and this was an incredible discussion with Dana Boyd. The discussion was just under one hour, but we edited it down for our podcast, and we think you are going to love it. And stay tuned after the interview. David and I will share some additional thoughts. Okay, so I would probably venture to say that I am the outlier in this room, being that I am not a privacy professional in any way. But I work with teenagers for a living, which is an awesome job. And one of the things that I want to you know, start off talking with you, Dana, about is that you know, I know that most people who work with teenagers don't do it because they're gonna get a lot of money or anything like that. They, usually, most for most of us, it's because we got a passion for doing this kind of work and we just love talking to teenagers. And so I kind of, you know. I, I'm not one of those people. No, he's, no, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> and so I really loved reading your book and all the anecdotes because I thought about you know, how I'm having these same discussions every day. But I'm just kind of wondering, what, what got you to, to inspire you to do this kind of work? I mean, the funny thing for me is that I was among the first teenagers to grow up online. And this was, you know, this was days of Usenet, this was oh IRC God. and bulletin boards. And for me, 
technology was a lifeline. I grew up in an environment where it wasn't cool to be a geek, a freak, or a queer. And as someone who was identifying as all three, I was like, yeah, I don't belong, but I really belonged online. And so I always think of the internet as my saving grace. And it allowed me to find a world of people that were like me. And so I went to, to college to study computer science. I was just going to build all these systems that we now know and love. And then I found that I was much more interested in how people were using them. And then I decided that studying as an anthropologist, I was like, well, let me go study kids who aren't like me. And so, you know, my advisor jokingly say that I would study normals. And I was like, what is normal? I'm not even sure. But right. the idea was that I was, I was going out to study kids that were not at any version of the margins, but kids that were just kids. And so the work was, was started out just being like, can we actually learn from folks who aren't noticeable, shall we say. Like they, they weren't in therapy or they weren't in, you know, specialized programs for civic engagement, but they were just kids. Right. And so it started there. Started there. Uh, your launching pad was doing your dissertative work or was it? Yeah, the launching work was um, diving into what would become my, my dissertation. Right. And, you know, it was funny because I had, I, at the time I had been studying Friendster. I don't know if any of you remember Friendster, but it's like, it's yep. like, it's like the graveyard of people my age um, on the internet. And it had there, there is no kid who's going to listen to this podcast <laughs> who will have understood anything you said so far. Yeah, I know. It's great. Yes. Bulletin board, Friendster, Usenet. Yes. It's, it's like old school. Oh, that's not entirely true. I've been amazed by watching kids um, talk about using retro technologies, and that includes a like, Walkman. What? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, Walkmans do have like a total thing among hipsters, but like retro technologies include things like MySpace. So you wow. know, that's a whole other thing. Yep. And there's like a whole retro IRC scene. Um, but yeah, no, most most young people don't know this stuff. So I was studying Fenster, and I was like okay, I'm going to get away from this so that I can study teenagers. That was the right. decision to do this, just as MySpace came in. So I know one of your passions is talking about teens and privacy, and this is something that I really liked in your book and what you said earlier, is that teens, kids generally, right, so the older people, us, often talk about how kids don't care about privacy, and a point you made, which I love, is that a lot of Silicon Valley leverages that as a way to justify their practices and saying, well, it's generational, teens don't care about privacy, so we should be allowed to do this. And what we have found in speaking with our guests, by the way, if you don't know, every third episode we bring on teenagers, is that they do. They absolutely care about privacy. Yep. They just don't use the word privacy. And then they talk about the settings they use, the choices they make about when they post, where they post, how they use accounts. And so if you start to, by asking, do you care about privacy, we always got a shrug. And then they would articulate all the things they do to protect their information. Right. And that's part of it. For me, it's the delight of the different strategies and tactics that they take in spite of the technology. For me, in the, in the book, I highlight some of the most creative versions, not because they are typical, but because their atypicality shows us something. So let me give you an example of one. I met this young woman who was frustrated by the drama in her school. And I was talking to her about, like, well, what's that drama? How does that unfold? And she's like, well, people take stuff from the past and they use it to torment me now. And I was like, okay. So I was like, well, can you give me an example? And I quickly, you know, in talking to her, worked out that the past meant two weeks ago, right? So we're in a very localized <laughs> sense of the past. Working with teenagers, um, yes. And so I was like, okay. And she's just like, you know, she's like, it was just out of context. And she was just, you know, frustrated that this was just you know, wrong and she wouldn't do it. 
So she, you know, and this was Facebook. This was Facebook was actually cool. Um, so she created this whole harebrained scheme where every day she would log in and she would delete the content that she'd ever posted in the past. And then she would write new stuff. And then the next day she'd log in and she would delete that. And it wasn't just about the drama in her school. It was also about all of the different issues of, uh, that she was navigating with adults in her life. And you know, when I said to her, I'm like, well, I mean, somebody could like screenshot the thing you wrote mm -hmm. it and save right. it for the future. And she's like, yeah, but that would make you creepy, right? And it was this interesting moment of saying, this isn't about a technical violation. This is about a social violation. The reality is, is I could come up to you in the school and record our conversation. But again, that is creepy. And that's where it's really interesting to think about what is technically possible and what is socially acceptable. And what was fascinating to me of watching teenagers build out these structures is that they didn't focus on just the technical mechanisms, but on figuring out where would the line be socially where I could just declare you a creep. Right. One of the things that, that struck me is, um, and I don't want to get too much down, down this rabbit hole, but we, you know, we had a, a number of guests that come on. In fact, we, I think we interviewed about six kids that came on talking about the idea of like, being in a relationship as teenagers and sharing intimate pictures with a significant other. And so the, and the question that came on is, you know, that we, that we asked all these, mostly females, what's going to happen if you break up with your boyfriend? What's gonna, you know, what, what do you think would happen to those pictures? And the, and the guests all, you know, everyone said, well, I would expect that he's going to get rid of them and wouldn't share them. That's just not socially acceptable. And yet now, the boys and, all said they don't. Yeah, and, and, and so and I actually came back to my, to my practice and I talked to a bunch of, you know, I'd see a lot of guys in my practice because I'm a token male in my practice. And uh, I asked a bunch of guys the next day, if a guy is dating a girl and, and they break up, what happens to those pictures? And they say, oh, of course we keep them. Of course we share them with our friends. So it's interesting that you say that because I'm just kind of wondering what you're thinking here because yes, there, there are, there's a social norm that, that's being described, but it's not universal. And, th and there's different rules, I think, for different kids. Social norms don't necessarily mean reality. You're okay. describing a culture of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. That culture of patriarchy isn't just about teenagers. Right. That's reinforced and normalized right. across adults. And mm -hmm. part of what's challenging for young women in a heteronormative mm -hmm. environment is that they are told and socialized into the idea that they can be anyone. They don't yet feel the full force of patriarchy. So what you're highlighting is a culture of harassment that young people haven't yet embraced. And what does it mean to tell young women, you know, again in this context, to say like, well, it's all up to you. You are the one that's now responsible to combat the culture of patriarchy. And so okay. I, that for me is where you actually have to, there's a whole different fight that occurs. So we have an issue of the technology. Right, which could be anything from the devices we give our kids to the social media they're on, Snapchat, there's that, and then there are the social norms and everything you're talking about. And so one of the things we're grappling with as parents now, right, my job, I am a dad of a 13-year-old right now, is, okay, so every eighth grader's got an iPhone, they are in fact sexting, right? Like it or not, we've been told this, and we need to, as parents, intercede some way so that the young women sending the photos, we think they shouldn't, but if they are, understand the consequences, and we're training our boys not to ask for them and not to start. 
So I shift that. I actually think you have to understand that power dynamic differently. And again, we'll stay within the heteronormative. I think that it's imperative for parents of young boys to actually be socializing into how this is harmful and to mm -hmm. call out their peers. And I think that that needs to be the dominant right. paradigm for doing this. So my thing is, is like, yes, of course we should talk to young girls about some of the consequences of this. But it is up to the young men to actually shift this culture. Okay. And but that's, for me, it's like, Teasing out all of this. It's, but it's if not I, I would, I would like to shift society in all those ways. I am agreeing with you, but I'm also grappling as a dad right now Absolutely. with a cohort of eighth graders, seventh graders who are engaging in all kinds of behaviors through technology and devices that absolutely continue all of those negatives. But because it, what they do online can be persistent and forever and permanent and public, there are a whole new set of consequences that we as parents are trying to grapple with around the consequences of the sexting, the collecting that, or the photos being sent off to college admissions and kids having their college acceptances revoked. What you're caring about as a parent, what we all care about as parents, is that you want to make certain that your child does not face unnecessary risk. Right? Yes. We'll use it in like corporatized logic since we are within a privacy conversation more generally. So if we think about what those risks are, first recognize that we are dreadful at modeling risk. Terrible at it. We suck. We yeah. suck. Yep. Um, I would recommend don't ever get in a car with your child. Right? If we're actually going to go with true risks, just don't drive. Right? Because that's actually the most likely to cause harm to your child. But as a result, yes, that's no, not we, what we right, Clearly my son has then learned how to speed, go through red lights, and get tickets. Right. I will Why stay out of me? that. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. Um, well, you brought up the cars. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I want to get in the middle of this fight. But that moment of like, how do we identify risk and how do we start to talk about risk? And how do we talk about it? Because what, what's fascinating to me when I started driving into the sexting conversation with young people in the earliest versions of this is I would ask people, why are you doing it? And they would say, it's safe sex. I was like, what? I was like, what's that mean? And they're like, well, you can't get pregnant or STIs. And I'm like, True. oh, yes, but. And so it was interesting to see that they had built in their own heads some risk model and some reward model, right? And that, you know, that's very, you know, not actually the language that young people, it's not emic language, but this idea that this is worth the risk, this is worth the benefit. And so part of it is, is being able to get those articulations going. And as a parent, the most important thing that you can do when it comes to risk calculations is to make it a conversation and make it a conversation from a young age, right? Like thinking it through, getting that to be verbalized and to verbalize your own risk taking, right? And you can guys go back to talking about your cars issues, right? Like, which well, is like, where do you are articulate what the speeding does and like the risks you're taking. So I'm going to let David jump in on this, but here's what I would say to that, which is that, yes, it's about risk calculations, but what I have found in interviewing our guests, and you work with teens I don't, is that they lack often the capacity to make a sound risk calculation and evaluate costs, benefits, and long-term consequences when faced with, say, instant gratification. This boy will be happy right now if I send him a naked pic, and I'm not thinking about where that might go or consequences. But Mark, this doesn't change at 18. That's the point. I don't point. think it changes at 40. Right. 
So that's my whole point is that like, you, can't, you can do all sorts of encapsulation of your child right now at home. What I'm trying to argue is building a set of strategies that he can take with him when he leaves your house. And that requires a set of ritualization right. and normalization. And there are going to be moments where he's going to mess up. And things are, he's going to pay consequences for it. And hopefully it's going to be like a bruise instead of a broken bone or something worse. Right. But part of why we do this risk calculation is not because they're capable of doing it, but because you want to normalize it. So I'm going to just think about this a little differently. And remembering in, in the kind of work that I do, technology is, a, is actually a small part of what I do for a living. It's, you know, I'm looking at all the other teenage stuff. And one of the things that, you know, a couple, you know, thoughts here is that one of the things that I see is that kids know, I think, from an early time, you know, 12 years old, you know, about, you know, good decisions versus bad decisions. They've heard it. They know that, that doing drugs is bad. They know that sex without a condom is dangerous. I mean, all these things, they get these messages. And yet there comes a point where in the moment they do have to make a decision. Is it, is, you know, and they have to really weigh that risk-benefit and do that risk-benefit analysis and weigh, is this instant gratification worth the risk? Now, here's the, you know, one of the things that, that I did actually struggle with a little bit in, in your book here, is that when we say teenager, we're, you know, teenager is not a stage, okay? And in fact, if you're gonna break things into stages as developmentalists like I like to be, or think I am maybe, um, is that you know, there's early adolescence, middle and late adolescence. So, you know, and so what, you know, what a 12 a 14-year-old is going to be thinking and looking at these things is going to be very different than what a 15 to 18-year-old and then a 22 to 25-year-old. And yes, adolescence does go up through age 25. That's a whole different discussion. Um, but but I think that you know one of my concerns, you know, I think about like privacy, for example, and how much privacy we give our kids. I'm a big advocate for you know giving you know having kids begin to develop their their sense of themselves out in the world and online. But I, I do kind of wonder, a 13-year-old, 12-year-old, 14-year-old having total privacy, is that something that is, that is good for them? Is that healthy? Rem- remembering that one of the kids do need to, 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 to flourish is some boundaries and limits, okay? I mean, that's an important thing for kids to have. Even if they don't want them, they will hate so, talking about it. A quick way of saying exactly that is, <laughs> we have a 13-year-old son, he has no right to privacy in my home or on his devices, period, end of story. So, so, so just like I'm just I look forward to seeing your dinners. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> so first, you know, I agree with your remark on adolescence. I think that the reason I chose teenager is one, because it's an emic term from within their own culture. They don't right. use adolescence. And two, it is a marketing term that was created in the 1940s. And I yep. go through this. <laughs> so and it has a very specific history with regard to money. Now, the thing to, for me about the stages. I don't believe that there's anything that magically happens at 13 or 18 or any of these things in which we have set our legal structures. Mm -hmm. And so there's no, also there's no universal, I can tell you what a 12 year old's like. I am sure you've Mm -hmm. seen a wide range of it. Mm -hmm. What I struggle with is that Privacy is about, again, a control of a social situation, and it's about recognizing the context in which those young people operate and function. And so I am often struggling with young people who do not have 
loving parents as their major backers, for right. whom I cannot have confidence that their parents will be their best advocates, that I cannot have confidence that law enforcement will be on their side, that I cannot have confidence are going to be able to navigate these dynamics without gangs or other cultures being in their business. So there's all of these different components that come into it. And part of it is, is that I actually think that privileged, and particularly privileged white young people, get to have more freedom and flexibility uh, without privacy for longer than more marginalized populations. The only way they get freedom is by actually going towards privacy. And that's, actually, that's a really conflicted and challenging thing when you understand even the degree to which you know, young people's photos and content are being pulled, right? So it's like, as parents, you guys are posting stuff of your own kids, maybe not in this room, but like overwhelmingly no people guilty. are doing it. Okay, and like that means that you're doing a whole variety right. of thing of setting up the narrative of him mm -hmm. that has consequences. So like we have right. to actually understand these broader contexts. Now what's important is that there's a stage in a young person's life where they start to recognize that privacy is important. And it comes with different levels, right? Like your three-year-old who really wants to, you know, go to the bathroom alone, right? And you're just like, where did you learn that, right? Because um, you never left me alone. Um, so like, you know, these, <laughs> what, where is it coming from? But there's these different moments, right, where they start to recognize certain things that they want to keep out of the sphere, right? And they start to do this boundary making. And part of it for me as a parent is our responsibility is to support them through that boundary making process. And for me, that's one of the reasons why it's not, it's not a cough. Now, there's another layer to your component, which is what's the pull switch, right? What's the moment where it's like, oh crap, we need to actually look this up. And this is where one of the things I've often argued is um, the idea of having a privacy piggy bank. Um, or a security piggy bank. Now go find one of those old piggy banks, the ones that don't have the thing that you can open at the bottom, the ones that actually force you to break the darn thing, and have everybody in your household, everybody, parents and children, put their passwords to every account they ever use in the privacy piggy bank. And the idea then is that in any state of emergency, the piggy bank can be broken and it can be discussed. The information is always there, it is always available, and the confidence is that it's always there. And it's very interesting to watch what that happens in households. Because what happens then is it becomes a discussion. And a lot of what I advocate for when it comes to parenting is how to turn things in those healthy households mm -hmm. into a discussion. Another right. tactic around this that I really recommend, especially for the um, the you know, middle school age period is to begin the process of writing a household contract. So what are the rules of the road for the household? I am a big fan of that, and, and we've done that. Right, and how... And, I've actually been mocked for doing that, and, but we did and it. How and how fast did your son tell you to not use your phone in certain places? Yes, he does. Right? Because <laughs> parents are yep. terrible at this, right? You say you kids can't use their phone, but I have an emergency. What are you signaling? Right? You are signaling that your well, life and your connection. It was kind of hard to tell the President of the United States. That. <laughs> That's the conversation, right? The conversation is how to articulate it. It's one of the reasons, like, for those of you who have little ones, I actually recommend every time you pick up a device to verbalize what you're doing. I'm going to call your, your, um, your dad because uh, we're, he's going to get pick up the milk. So I'm going to text him right now. Do you want me to tell you anything? All right, we'll do it together, right? Versus, like, I'm going to pick up the phone right now because I'm really bored of talking to you and I really want to do anything else. Right, you're not going to say that. Or I really think work is more important than it's you right, right now. And those moments of starting to make those patterns a conversation are really what I'm trying to get at here and recognizing that the contexts run the gamut.
This episode of Their Own Devices is sponsored by Hover.com. Hover.com is a domain name registry where you can go to purchase your own custom domain name. I went there to finally buy theirowndevices.com, but it is already taken. But Hover.com came up with over 100 different suggestions for other related domain names that would work. And I purchased four of them. There was a huge sale. It was so inexpensive, I couldn't pass. And I ultimately got theirowndevices.tech, theirowndevices.website, and theirowndevices.online, as well as theirowndevicespodcast.com. Very cool. It was easy to use, great UI, great interface, and now I'm the proud owner of four domain names. Maybe one day I'll be the proud owner of a website too, but that's next. If you want your own custom domain name, check out hover.com slash TOD, and that will give you 10% off your first purchase. What I like about what you said is that, um, and what we have not done a good job on our podcast, is that I do think race, class, religion, gender, demographics are going to have a huge impact, I I assume, on how kids will interact with technology, society, devices, social media. And of course, we're coming at it from a certain perspective from upper northwest Washington, D.C., where a doctor and a lawyer, we know that. And we know that, at least I don't have insight into how it will play out in even other cultures. I can only imagine what it's like to be online if you're, I don't know, Muslim at certain points. I I can't imagine what it must be like to see this flood of of hostility. It's awful. And it's, you know, I'm on the board of Crisis Text Line, which is this amazing service for people to text in when they're in crisis. And it's a counseling service. Right, right. And one of the things that is both... I mean, heartwarming to see the service support, but heartbreaking to see the messages of like how many young people do not have people that they can turn to when they're in crisis. And, you know, I'm glad to be able to have this texting service, you know, and and please, you know, help support this service. Come volunteer, come, you know, come donate. But the idea that so many young people don't have people that they can turn to that are health experts, they don't have insurance, they don't have parents that are going to have their back, they're dealing with abuse, they're dealing with all of this conflict, they're dealing with domestic violence, with alcoholism, with the very realities, you know, that actually do also still run, but they run the class and, and dynamics in a different way. And I think it's important to realize that for so many young people, this is also a lifeline. Yes. And, and, I, and I think that that's kind of where I struggle a little bit with this because I know that, for example, and we had a, a, somebody ask us about this last year when we gave a talk here. If you are a gay or lesbian or a transgender 14-year-old somewhere in the middle of the country where you're, you don't know anyone else, you know, being online and having your identity online is, is a lifesaver. Now, I can also say anecdotally, I've known kids who had those kind of identities online and it actually outed them and caused them a lot of problems. And there's the danger there. And once again, I think this maybe maybe this speaks to some of the, how do I deal with consequences? They're also incredibly vulnerable and potential targets. Yes. It is impossible to distinguish what is fact or authentic or real from things that are not. And we've spoken to all these teenagers who are using social media and there's been a consistent theme. They are kind of exhausted. In other words, they are spending all these hours on Instagram, which fine, but then they have multiple accounts, the Insta, the Finsta, the Drinsta, we found out about a Savage Finsta. Savage Finsta. <laughs> where they are curating, like they've got their marketing Instagram account, so it's public facing for the adults in colleges, and then a Finsta turns out for their 1,000 closest friends, and then a smaller one for the really closest friends, 
and then they're using software. They're changing their face and their outfits and they're curating. That's an enormous amount of pressure. It's like they're marketing. It's not a communication tool. It's not an outreach tool. I'm worried that it has evolved into my like adolescent marketing platform. So the internet is many, many, many things. Mm -hmm. And there are parts of it that young people are finding that are very supportive and very wonderful. Most activists and most adults who think that they're like being pro-internet are not actually out there really supporting young people like they are. They were. The organizations that we would have expected to come online to support people aren't supporting people where they are. Now, in terms of this market, in terms of this marketing component of it, which is in many ways a different dynamic of it, this is upper class dynamics, full stop. And it has to, I mean, this is the pressure around college, this is the pressure yep. around grades, this is the thing that we have created. And I don't actually blame young people for living up to mm -hmm. the craziness that we've created. And the reality is, is that if we want to address the fact that they are in this marketing frenzy, we need to come back and say, what is it going to mean to allow children to th thrive in this society without tremendous amount of, of debt, without this status game that academia has become in such ways? That's what this is. They're marketing for college. Of course they are. We have taught them to do this by the time that they enter school. But that is the culture that I blame us adults for having created. I don't blame the teenagers for living up to it. So what do we want to teach them, though? Again, my kid is living and being raised in that environment, and I imagine a lot of people here, too. And so, and I, I agree with everything you've said, right? But then I turn to the parents who call us with what they're grappling with now and what we're grappling with, and it's, it's difficult. So, for example, in some respects, it is intelligent that our kids have learned you have multiple accounts, right? It is, it is showing that they're, they are... They understand that they don't want everything to be public, and so thank God the drinking pictures are on the Finsta, right? And the volunteer pictures are on the public one. So they figured that out. But I have been, in the last year, dealing with more situations that I, I care to count where there were serious consequences for kids, including having their scholarships and admissions to universities revoked and rescinded. And the way it played out is in each case, the photograph, or a video in one case, was sent to the university by one of their friends. So one of their 500 closest friends. Right, friends. 500 closest Close. friends, 100 closest friends inside a group, right? Sent the video on. They didn't get into this, whatever it is, so that this notion they had about, well, a photograph is only going to this small group, like, is not playing out. It is being screenshot. Like, the ramifications are real. Absolutely. And I'm trying to figure out how we, how, how do I work with my kid about that? Like, don't post anything. I don't want to say that. No, I mean, that's why, for me, this is, I mean, this is fundamentally a conversation. And yes, some kids are, you know, facing these, you know, dynamics. But for me, like, this is why it's a cultural change. And yes, you can, as parents, you can double down and, you know, really, you know, win at this current game. And in many ways, what you're arguing is, let's win at this current rigged game. And my problem is, is like, I don't want to win at this current rigged game. I want to change the game. And like, I think about, you know, I don't remember where in my book it is. I think about this moment where I t was talking to a elite Ivy League school and a college admissions officer. And uh, they had told me about this kid who had applied to college, and he had said he wanted to leave behind his gang-ridden community. And they had written this sort of beautiful college essay about leaving behind his gang-ridden community. And they went up and looked him up on MySpace and said, you know, 
why is he lying to us when we can tell the truth online? And what they had found was a MySpace profile of a young black man in South Central in Los Angeles who was clearly performing gang affiliation. And if you know anything about survival in this community, you know you're going to perform a gang affiliation. And I'm sitting here going, how are we going to punish this kid who is actually making a very reasonable decision in his local context to survive? And we're going to punish him because he doesn't live up to elite white standards? And so for me, like, Mark, I can tell you, like, yes, there are ways where you can lecture and yell and, and tell kids not to do it, and you can punish them, and you can block them, and you can set up all these things. But this game is rigged. And the reality is, is that your son is most likely to do fine in this game. And I'm really worried about all of the kids out there that are just not going to survive this game. Although I will say, so, and again, I'm agreeing with you and I, I know where we come from, but like we are seeing, right, in the culture we've created. And by the way, I grew up in a very similar culture like that. I didn't have social media. So I didn't have the opportunity, right? Because right. I mean, it, it the pictures aren't there. I smoked From the and one didn't or two dumb things maybe I did. I smoked and didn't <laughs> inhale. I did coke, but then I found religion. I did coke, get over it, right? right Let's okay. acknowledge that. You know, I think part of it is to realize that there have been things that have set up for dynamics for teenagers where there are things that have, have messed with teens all across this pathway. So like, think about uh, Rosalind Weissman's work you know, that resulted in the book um, and, or the film uh, Mean Girls, right? This is before the internet, right? And this was a suicide culture due to the same kinds of stress. Suicide culture that we have seen mm -hmm. also, in, like Nutria, we saw it in Palo Alto, yeah. that had nothing to do with the internet, that had to do with the same stress we're talking about. What's happening is, yes, we have amplified these That's stressors. Exactly the, uh, wow, but it that was the word I was going, yes, the it amplifies it. actually didn't do it. It's actually all of the pressure for elitism that has done it. The inability, I mean, when you were applying to college, what was the acceptance rates? What are the acceptance uh, no, rates No, I have now? no doubt I wouldn't get in today. Right? I'm sure of it. Right, and yeah. so like, this is yeah. part of the whole right. ecosystem. The competitiveness amongst parents, the competitiveness amongst kids. We're not even focused on how to help people be happy. We're asking them to play a rigged game. Let me ask you a question about tech. And then I'm going to turn to you, but this, I okay. want to make sure, because for this audience, <laughs> I want to see if you agree or this, with me or not on this particular point, which is that there is nothing neutral about how technology gets implemented by Silicon Valley. There is nothing neutral about Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat, and we often think there is. But in fact, while we want it to be a place where our kids are just communicating, we know that their feeds are manipulated and changed by algorithms, the default settings in UI, UX drive certain behavior, right? So add to everything we've already been saying is that the platforms are not neutral, and they don't necessarily line with the parents' priorities for their kids or what the kids ought to do, because the incentive from the company is, right, the shareholder value, not the kid. Does that resonate or is that off? I mean, yes, with some, you know, slight variations, we agree. I think the thing to me to see about young people in relationship to this is that we don't actually agree on what parenting should be. We don't actually agree on what social culture, and the reason I right. say this is that what has happened at different periods of American history, just, let's just talk this country, is that we build, wealthy people built gated communities to keep kids from other kinds of kids. And mm -hmm. what's happened is that a lot of what we're also dealing with is truly collision of cultures and values. And we do not know how to deal with it at any level. And so it's not just that it's manipulated. The irony to me about a lot of what happens in social media is it 
you know, especially the um, social media platforms. So I'm going to step away from the recommendation engines in search and talk about social media. The social media encourages you to double down on the norms in your own environment. Yes, exactly. And that actually, to me, is That's a the great whole irony of the other internet. weird thing, which is that be doubling down and it just sort of feeds those back. You mirror, magnify the good, bad, and ugly of your local environment. Where things get different and where things are sort of twisting in a really fascinating way, for me, I, I center it on YouTube, which is like just the most popular search engine for under 25s. And keep in mind, we, th we have to think about YouTube as a search engine and as a recommendation engine. Those are the two most important components of it. Well, so my son thinks it's a news station, but that works too. Well, that's the same thing. It's like, meaning you're starting out to try to find information and what's next. You start by searching for news, you start by searching for something, and then what's next? And what's really disturbing to me is, of course, that that system has been extraordinarily manipulated. Of course, yep. and right. the company does not know how to cope with it. And parents don't know how to to start to have conversations. Because one of the things that's amazing to me in terms of, you know, it's like we want schools to teach media literacy under some crazy component that Digital actually, citizenship. Digital citizenship. And like, you know, I generally love the people who are trying to push this and, try, and are passionate about it. What I think is missing from it is that, you know, the schools are not going to be able to do it in a values conversation way, in the same way that you can do within a home context, where you can start to, to ask the questions with young people about like, why is this being staged this way? Who is trying to achieve what? I want to see YouTube change their platform massively. I am deeply frustrated with many aspects of it. And I'm very hopeful that, you know, that we can get there with some of these platforms. But I also, you know, want to highlight that this is a security issue to me, not just a platform issue, which is to say that the manipulation that I'm seeing is gaming every new evolution. Yes, And yeah. that's one of the reasons why when you start to think of it as a security issue, you realize you're dealing with the vulnerabilities and exploits, and you start to realize that you're never going to have a secure system. There is no such thing as a secure system. And that means as parents, the way we need to be thinking about it is how do we create resilience? Because resilience is the only pathway through an insecure system. Uh, and I was to say, resilience is, you know, and, and the cultivation of it is a big topic in my world, you know, in terms of dealing of with course. teenagers and their ability to navigate these things um, on, on every level. But when we were talking about the culture and how kids are putting themselves out there and, and marketing themselves and that, and that whole discussion, one of the things that, that we have, you know, asked our guests, our teenage guests, and almost unanimously, I, you know, when I've asked them, if you could wave a magic wand and make things different, you know, in terms of all this stuff that they're, the stresses they're dealing with, what would it, you know, what, what would it be? And one of the things that just they come back to is they wish that it wasn't so all the time, 24-7, you know, they can't, you know, even when they're not one, online. Right? One online. girl said she wished everybody, because no yeah. one kid Facing peer pressure can do this. She right. said, I just wished all social media shut off at 7 p.m. and didn't come on until like 9 a.m. Don't you too? Wouldn't it be great if your job shut off at 7 p.m.? Huh. Does that ever happen? Mm. <laughs> right? But yes. Well, again, this but, is the culture we've so, created. So, so, so how, how, I'm just kind of curious. So what but do that's not like Facebook's goal. Facebook you know, wants them there all the time. Right. So again, this for me is again a process, right? Right. You know, one of the things that I had to learn to do, you know, as an adult, was to build my own set of structures of how I would make my world work, right? Mm -hmm. And how I would think about getting sleep, how I would think about like taking time off, all of these things. And they become not something that's just accepted, right? Like vacation just you know, happily happens. It's like, no, I have to take it. I have right. to think about it. And this is where, for me, one of the things that's been fascinating is 
when teenagers learn that they can actually build structures into them. And so my favorite of the little tactics I saw is um, password, password exchanges during final exams. So the idea that like we know that this is all bad for all of us, and so we're going to swap passwords with everybody so that like I can't actually have my own account during final exams. And it was like within trusted circles. And it was like, you're not going to let me end my account no matter how much I want to um, because you're my best friend, and I will get my account back in a week. And it was interesting to see that was like a little, like those little innovations where you're like, you got it. You understand what's going on here. And so part, this goes back to that, these aspects of contracts. was like, how do you create the articulation of what you really want? Do you really feel good after spending eight hours on the service? No. And how do you build that kind of robust you know, boundary making? Because I would love for it to just get baked into our society. I would love for work to end at 5 p.m. I would love for all of these things to be structured so that we didn't have to think about it. But no one child is going to be able to do that. Right. And so that, for me, is one of the reasons why I think it becomes something to set in motion and for a parent, too. So unfortunately, we're going to be out of time. I just wanted to say on this topic that I want to um, thank you very much because this was you, really, really fun. Hopefully it was clear. We didn't talk in advance. We didn't prep questions. We figured the three of us would fill the time somehow. And so thank you very much and enjoy the rest of the conference. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I thought that was a great conversation with Dana Boyd. We had a very engaged audience, and obviously, like myself, Dana is not a shy wallflower and very open and willing to express her views. So here's uh, just a couple of thoughts I have uh, reflecting on that conversation. I think that as a general matter, at least from my perspective, we were agreeing on a lot of things, but we were coming at the discussion at different levels or from slightly different perspectives. Like our podcast, Their Own Devices, I am looking at the issue from the perspective of someone who is parenting a teenager today and is trying to be the best parent I can be and sort through some complicated issues with my own family and as well as my son's friends and their families. And I think Dana was looking at issues from a much more global perspective, looking at sort of culture and society and economics on a larger level and believes that we need to make really big wholesale changes in sort of society and how we view women and kids and teens. And all of that may be completely correct. It just is a longer term, bigger process that is about more than tech. Yeah, Mark, I agree with that. I think that one of the big things, like you mentioned, is that she's looking at making some changes in the way the entire system works. The problem I think that many of our listeners have is that they need to know, what do I do now with my kids? And how do I manage this right now in 2019? So I agree with everything that Dana was saying. And I think that, you know, there's a big long-term issue that we need to look at here. But at the same time, we do also need to look at short-term fixes. And that's what we're, you know, that's a little bit more of what our focus has been on on this show. Right. And I think it all came down to towards the end. I think Dana sort of summed up the difference nicely in that she was saying, well, it sounds to me like you guys are trying to win at this game. I I don't know that I would phrase it that way. And then she said, I don't want to win at the game. I want to change the entire game because this game is rigged. And of course, you know, there's a lot of that that may actually be true. Right. But that doesn't help me parent today or help you know, others who are grappling with some very real issues around the impact of technology on our children 
And I think, you know, she also used the word amplify and said that what social media does and digital technology is it amplifies all the bad. It can amplify all the good. It's interesting because that's the word our teenagers use in other episodes. And that's exactly right. It takes things that are both good or bad and it amplifies it and it makes it spread faster. It is permanent. It becomes public faster, which I think does change the dynamic and does change the way it impacts our families and our children. But I want to close by saying that I don't think the two perspectives are sort of mutually exclusive. In fact, I think they go together. And I'll just give this great example that I didn't have an opportunity to tee up during our conversation at the IAPP Global Summit, which is that, you know, in in parenting my own son, one thing that I did recently is that we listened to the episode on sexting, the girl's perspective on sexting together. So my 13-year-old son and I listened to it. It is a little graphic maybe for a 13-year-old, but I thought appropriate. But we listened to it together, and we talked about how girls perceive sexting, what it's like to receive it, what it's like for a young woman to be pressured. And then we talked about the fact that boys shouldn't pressure girls, shouldn't ask for it, and that it is probably not the best way to get a date is to send graphic pics, and that there are bigger issues there. And so for me, that was a really concrete way for me to have a discussion with my own son to try and help him understand the issues and keep him and his friends, frankly, out of trouble and do the right thing. But that also touches on these broader issues that Dana brought up, which is that we need more dads to talk to their boys about how boys ought to behave with girls and their peers. We need to educate our young women about what they should expect and perceive. And I think where we all agree, David, is that if you listen to what Dana was saying, she has a huge focus on having discussions, on making sure that different parts of parenthood offer an opportunity to talk to our kids, whether it's about privacy generally or privacy online, whether it's about gender roles generally or the issue around sexting through Snapchat. And I think that's a place where, at least from my perspective, there's huge consensus that making sure we're having these ongoing conversations with our kids, whether we're talking about teens in tech or just teens more generally, is just key. You didn't have to agree with everything Dana said. You certainly don't have to agree with everything I say or David. But I do think that these kinds of conversations are incredibly helpful. They shed light on complex issues. And so bringing in, you know, a perspective that others have very different issues and different challenges, I think will make us all just better, more aware parents and hopefully more open to conversations with our own kids who probably have their own perspectives and probably disagree with all of us. Thanks for listening to Their Own Devices. This show is a conversation and we'd love to hear from you. Email us at hello at theirowndevicespodcast.com. Their Own Devices is hosted and produced by Mark Roman and David Reitman. This podcast is recorded at Clean Cut Studios in Washington, D.C., and the episode was edited by Ryan Dan. Be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. It will help other parents find the show and get the info they need. We'll see you next time. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.